0: Hello, and welcome back to the Q's Conversations podcast. My name is John Boccasino, the communications specialist in Syracuse University's Office of Alumni Engagement. I'm also a 2003 graduate of the SI Newhouse School of Public Communications with a degree in broadcast journalism. I am so glad you found our podcast. As our country continues to grapple with issues of racial unrest, Sarah Kamya is doing her part to make sure that Black people feel better represented in literature than she did growing up. Kamya, a 2017 graduate of the David B. Falk College of Sport and Human Dynamics, is the creator of the Little Free Diverse Library Project, which aims to amplify Black voices while supporting Black authors and Black owned bookstores. Through the project's first few weeks, Kamya has already raised more than $10,000. Purchased more than 500 books written exclusively by Black authors from Black-owned bookstores and received more than 400 books through her Amazon wishlist. These books are being distributed to little free libraries around both her Arlington, Massachusetts home and 28 different states around the country. Sarah is our guest on today's episode of the Cuse Conversations podcast to discuss how her little free diverse library project is making a difference. There's so many things that we identify ourselves with through reading and through literature. And too often, people of color have not been able to find those voices uh, through their authors and through their stories. And so, Sarah, the work you've done has been remarkable. It's got to be a little overwhelming, the, the success, right?
1: Yeah, it's, it's definitely overwhelming. Every day when I like, hear the mailman creeping up, I'm like, oh no, oh no, how many books is it going to be? But it's so exciting um, at the same time. I really, truly did not expect any of this.
0: So take us inside this awesome project, the Little Free Diverse Library Project. It's in Arlington, Massachusetts right now, but it's going to keep you know, spreading across our country, hopefully. What was the origin? What was the nexus of this project?
1: So basically, I'm back home in my hometown because of the pandemic. And what I thought would be a really easy way to just get books to other people was through little free libraries. There's one right behind my house and there's another that I pass on my normal like walking route. And so I was like, well, this would be easy. I just put some books in people take them. Great. I also was seeing a lot of more like black owned businesses being um, talked about. And I was like, this could be a great way to support black owned bookstores and so one thing kind of led to another. And when I posted about it, I just started receiving donations and donations. And in the first hour I received a thousand dollars worth of donations. And I was like, great, perfect. A lot of books for good here. And I did not expect the donations to continue to come in. And then what later came in, uh, what later was created was an Amazon wish list, which helps even more books come. But I really just wanted to get some books out there and have other people pass them along, return them, not return them.
0: And so the concept of one of these little free libraries and with your little free diverse library project, it's basically, if I'm driving down the street, I see one of these libraries, I can either make a deposit or I can take a book out myself if I want to educate myself?
1: Yeah. So you don't have to have a book. So the whole thing is take a book, leave a book, but you don't have to leave one and you don't have to take one. It's just sometimes I've walked by and I've seen a book I like and I I like to own books a lot of the time. So (laughs) I will take a photo of it and then I'll just purchase the book on my own or like find another way to get it. But um, yeah, it's a really great way for people to take books without feeling like they have to buy it or that they have to return it. It can be yours or it can spread to many, many other people.
0: It seems like, and you mentioned uh, you know, being home in Arlington during the pandemic, we've had a lot of time on our hands, a lot of time yeah. to contemplate this crazy, complex world that we're living in. Yeah. When you factor in the pandemic with George Floyd and the racial injustice and the police bias and the protesting right. that's happening, this really seems like it's a perfect time to have some of these difficult conversations about identity and racial relations and from what I understand, Sarah, you grew up in, I don't want to say in adverse situations, but there weren't a lot of kids like you. There weren't a lot of people of color growing up in your neighborhood. Right. What were those experiences like and how did that influence this project?
1: So I really enjoyed growing up in Arlington. I had a really great group of friends, which made it really enjoyable for me. And at the time, I don't think I realized how alone I was or how um, different I was from other people, which I think in some ways was really great. But looking back, there was so much work that wasn't talked about or so much that wasn't addressed. That's so important to talk about and to bring up. And, um, I oftentimes found myself, you know, not represented in books, but not represented in shows and not represented within the school community. So I wasn't cast in certain roles or I wasn't given certain, um, Opportunities almost and it is crazy looking back because I did not realize at the time but if that was just one experience for me I can't imagine and I and I know that that's gone on for so many so many people and I just think that it's time to really start these conversations and they can start young and they can start in schools and they can start in offices and they can start in many spaces but without the conversation, I don't think change can occur.
0: This seems like it ties in perfectly. There's a really outdated study psychologically
1: mm-hmm. back in
0: I think the 60s where they're having uh, children identify with dolls yes. and they have people of color who are used to just playing with the white dolls and they feel that you know if they do come across a, a black doll or a darker skin doll, they feel there's a sense of inferiority. They feel right. like it doesn't really reflect. And, and that's heartbreaking. When yeah. you see a child at a young age starting off, you know, behind the eight ball, so to speak, with regards to their confidence, right. how, how do you feel books, how do you feel literature can help to close that gap? And this project, especially to try to bring identity and power and, and understanding to children that probably haven't been exposed to these types of books before.
1: Right. I think one of the biggest things is just being able to see main characters Represented, um, and that those characters are people of color, and that you know a lot of these stories tell about like the first day of school or like going on a trip. And if if people of color can't see themselves as those characters, how can they see themselves even doing that in real life? How can they see themselves becoming like a class president or going on a magical trip if they're not even being represented? And I think that. Um, these books have the power to show everyone that people of all colors can do a lot and that for so long, people of color were told they couldn't or weren't um, represented in this way. And so by getting to have books that really open up people's eyes, but also open up the dialogue, I think is so important. And for people of color to see that you know, there's so much you can do and there's so much to be celebrated and not to feel ashamed or to feel worried or to feel nervous um, is so important in the message that's not often sent for people of color.
0: And with this project, what's so cool is it's supporting, you know, it's, it's supporting black voices. It's supporting right. black owned bookstores and black authors. Mm-hmm. Can you run the gamut for us, Sarah, a little bit about, you know, the types of books, what ages we're talking about, and maybe yeah. some of the ones that you're most proud of being yeah. able to put in the hands of other children and young people?
1: Yeah. So I think I have books from ages like zero to, or whenever you start to read a book to a kid, I don't think there's any two time too early, but I have very young books, like board books, where I think there's honestly just like one word on each page. So that's like zero. It's considered up to adults. I have a lot. It actually, at first there's like, oh, we just, I just need adults to read these books. And then adults can tell their kids later. And then I was like, no, there's also so many kid books that can teach these and teach parents at the same time. I think that some of these books, I, I would be reading them and I'm like, if I was a parent, this would be so beneficial for me to know as well, um, some of the the stories and the messages. But anyways, so the books go from zero to whatever, a hundred and above. And some of my favorites are stories well, so one of my favorites is Tallulah, the Tooth Fairy CEO. It's written by Dr. Tamara Pizzoli, and it's about this black tooth fairy who is the CEO of her, her tooth fairy business. And it's just such a cool story because, you know, the main character is this CEO boss, which is just such a great depiction. Um, being a black woman in this power that we don't often see and then the story just goes through her day-to-day motions her board meetings how she gets things done. She like gets drinks with Mrs. Claus um, at the North Pole. It's so good and I was like cracking up the whole time at one of the board meetings someone asks like like don't all fairies matter and she's like well I'm the Tooth Fairy CEO and it just talks about <laughs> such great topics and um, I really like that one and one that a lot of books that I've been getting in are about hair, which for African American or black um, or people of color, the topic of hair can be really a tricky one or one that's not discussed. And I've gotten a lot of messages from people saying, my daughter doesn't like her hair or my daughters feel so insecure about her hair. And when he posted about the I love my hair book, um, we had to buy it because she needs to know her hair is beautiful. And so a lot of the, I have a lot of books like Happy Hair, I Love My Hair, Princess Hair, Hair Love. I have a lot that um, really talk about this. And I think that's one of the, that one really touched me getting all these in because they're books that I didn't read when I was growing up and going through my own hair struggles. And I think it's important for other people to learn that The black hair is a struggle for so many and like learning about it is such a really interesting way of getting to know a culture in a way that, you know, we don't have to teach into white hair. There's not books about white hair, but we have to have these books and we have to have these conversations about people not touching it or asking questions or looking at it funny. It's unfortunate that it has to be explicitly said and taught, but those books I, I think do so much for both sides of this. And I really liked those coming in. And then as for adult books, there's a lot of good ones. I really like why are all the white kids sitting together in the cafeteria? That was like a required read when I got hired at my job. I work at a school and that one I think is really great. And so you want to talk about race is also really incredible and both touch upon a lot of the divides in our country, but also I think they both highlight ways to bring us more together, which I think is so important. And I like, having books with like actionable steps sometimes because it can be so helpful for me, for someone else to kind of soak in what's been said and then find ways to hopefully start more conversations.
0: The conversation point is really what I, I love the education. I love the empowerment, but if we're we're all in this together, when it comes to the the racial injustice, it's up to white people, black people, people of all ethnicities and colors to work together to kind of get us over this hump of injustice that we've been dealing with and and conversation is such an important cog in that change. How do you feel this project and, and getting people open to more books of different viewpoints, how can that spark discussions that can then lead to change?
1: I think that conversations, I think book clubs exist so people can talk about the book. Right. And so that people can share their thoughts and experiences about it. And or if you're not in a book club, then you're you see someone on the beach reading the book and you're like, oh, I read that book or I had these thoughts about this book. And I think that what these books can do. And as they're passed along from library to library, person to person, they can open up people's eyes to things that they hadn't read before and can engage in discussions with neighbors or with family friends. Or if they pass that book along, they can share their thoughts on it. And I really like the idea of the fact that it's not, you know, people aren't going out and necessarily, um, like the books that fall into these libraries that aren't purchased by that person. So they, they can pass it along in a way that is meaningful and can spark those conversations. Like I, my, my, my goal is to, I wish I could see when someone takes a book where it goes after that. But I don't think you just pass the book along and say, here, take this. I think that you say, here, take this book. I learned this from it. And this was so interesting. And wait till you get to the third chapter because it talks about systemic racism in schools. And I had no idea about the school to prison pipeline and all that kind of stuff. And I think that a book has that power. And if it's not being passed along, then hopefully it's being underlined or it's being dog-eared and it's being, um, you know, looked into more. And that's what I do with my books, no matter what kind of book. So that's my vision for these books and how they take flight.
0: You mentioned uh, within the first hour or so that a thousand dollars had been, had been donated to this project. Yeah. That must've been a little bit overwhelming to see the success. How did you take that right away? And, and how did you then challenge yourself to not get complacent and say, all right, we've crossed this first threshold. Let's keep going.
1: I, I don't know. It was one of those things that it just, took off and I was thinking to myself like where do I go from here and I had actually talked to my friend and she I'm a school counselor and she's a school counselor in Utah and she was like you should have reps um, receive these books and place them in other states and I was like well I do have a lot of money right now I can buy a lot of books and as the money kept going in I, I had bought already 75 books for my town and I thought like at this point I have so much money that can go elsewhere and to other people um, we have to keep this going and I have to expand this.
0: And it's 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 remarkable. I mean, you talk about the momentum that a project like this can gain, right? And and, and now it's it, it's really snowball to the point where again the numbers are remarkable. Um, more than ten thousand dollars have been raised so far. More than four hundred books. And and I want to keep going back to the the black owned bookstores because right. I feel like that's such a vital piece of this story. Yeah. What kind of partnerships did you develop with some of these black owned bookstores, and how have they received this project?
1: Yeah. So. When it started, I had really uh, been working closely with Mahogany Books, which is in Washington, D.C. It was one of the first that I had recognized that had an online store, a large uh, variety of options, and I was like, this is perfect. So my first $1,000 was actually all went straight to them, um, and those books are all filling Arlington. and But so I knew it would be important to support these black owned businesses. And there's been a lot of lists coming out about these bookstores. So I've kind of just taken it on as these different, um, states. So I have mahogany books in DC. I have Semicolon in Chicago. I have, um, the lip bar in the Bronx, frugal bookstores in Boston. And so when I, when I tell them, I'm like, I, I tell them about the project and they're so, astonished but at the same time all these bookstores have never experienced the volume of purchases and book orders that I'm receiving emails almost daily like hi everyone your books are going to arrive soon sorry for the delay not to mention that there is a pandemic going on so shipping is delayed anyways and they're overwhelmed but in the best way possible because their books are selling out and they're you know, replenishing book, like printing houses are printing books right now of some of these really popular book titles because they've never seen anything like this. So for the bookstores, they're so grateful to see this happen and to see just the influx of people getting these books and wanting to read them.
0: It's not just a one-way street from what I've gathered. And you want to go follow... Uh, on Instagram, Uh, give, give our, give our listeners your, your handle on Instagram because some of the live stories you produce, it's touching just to see the impact and the difference that these books
1: are making. Yeah. My Instagram is little free, diverse libraries, plural libraries. And it's, yeah, it's fun. It's fun to update people on the books that arrive when the USPS man drops them off, who is thankfully, our next door neighbor's son so we are close and i every time he walks up with like 50 boxes i'm like can i get you water can i get you something because (laughs) i feel bad sometimes because there's just so many but he's happy to do it and he loves the project i've had the ups uh delivery people take photos i have a sign on my door that says like sorry for all the boxes and i explain what i'm doing because i don't want them to think i'm some online crazy shopper so they'll take photos um and people really have taken to it. I usually sit on my porch when I do my unboxings because it's just easier. And people will walk by in the neighborhood and know about it or want to know about it. And it's really incredible. But so on my Instagram, there's a lot you can follow along with um, and see how the journey just keeps building.
0: It must have been a little bit of a convergence of both worlds with, with the, the old world of printed books and new age of social media, especially right. when Eva Chen, the head of fashion at Instagram, Yes. gets involved take yes. us through your interactions with her she's such a powerful social influencer yes. more than 1.4 million followers how did she kind of help catapult this project a little bit
1: so i kind of one day you know that it had gotten to a good point i had a decent amount of followers i had a lot of donations coming in and i just thought like i should help spread this and so i was texting with my roommate who became my mini pr agent and she started helping me message all these influencers and mini celebrities. I think she even DM'd like Barack Obama. I'm like, don't know if he'll ever answer. but <laughs> Love our effort.
0: Hey, um, shooters, got to shoot. You got to take your right, shot. <laughs>
1: exactly. So we had I had DM'd Eva Chen because she had she has written a lot of books um, about different and showcasing diverse characters. So she wrote Juno Valentine, which was her first book, and then she wrote A is for Awesome, which rep- has a lot of it has 23 iconic women who changed the world so it it displays a lot of um diverse women who have really really changed this world we live in and so a lot of her books are inspiring and great and uplifting and perfect for this project but um so i i asked her if she would just share it and she was like can you make an amazon wish list and i was like ah oh, i really want to support black owned bookstores and she agreed and she understood but she was like i'm telling you you will get so many books if you do this and i was like okay i gotta do it so i made it and she added it and it was one of those swipe ups so people were literally able to just go from there and send me a book with one click which is i guess the beauty of that that website and um yeah then literally two days later books were rolling in and i haven't stopped since (laughs)
0: Boy, that's, it's remarkable how, again, you get the, your message before the right audience yeah. and it gets amplified. The results kind of take off and, yes. and it's so great because you mentioned just wanting to start here in the Arlington community with right. these great free libraries, right. but you, you've expanded beyond your local town. What has yeah. that been like and, and how far have you seen some of your books wind up?
1: Yeah, that's been a really exciting part. That has really touched me to see these towns and communities across different states wanting these books and advocating for amplifying these Black voices. Um, So far I've sent books to about 17 different states. I've sent books, so people will message me saying, hi, Sarah, like I saw all of this. I would love to receive books. I pass Little Free Libraries all the time. Can you send me books? And so I've been collecting emails and I have a whole spreadsheet. And basically I've just been, with the money donated, I go on to the Lip Bar, um, their ordering page through Bookshop, and we'll just put in that person's address and send the books off to their house. Um, and so then they're arriving, I don't even know when they arrive, but people will be like, the books came. And I'm like, yay, it's really exciting. <laughs> so I've sent books to like everywhere. It's been amazing. It really has. I want the books to go as far and wide as possible. It would be amazing to get them into all 50 states. That would be pretty cool. Um, maybe I'll, my goal would be to get 25 by the end of next week or something. Um, <laughs> but it's been really cool to see where those go and how how far they can really spread.
0: It's really cool too because you can hear from the participants who have purchased books and ordered books, they oftentimes will leave you know, a personalized note thanking yes. you for this project and what this yes. means to them. Are there any notes in particular that have really resonated with you of gratitude for what you're doing with this project?
1: Yeah, there's been a lot of notes saying like, "We ne- I needed this or where were you when I was younger or um, talking about how they grew up not feeling represented or seen or heard and that this is such a powerful thing. And I can't, I can't agree with those statements more. I I feel like a part of me is really shedding parts of the past through this project and really coming to terms with how my uh, childhood was, how that all came to be and how I felt growing up, but how much I hope I'm passing on to future generations through this. And some of those messages have really touched on that. And then I've gotten messages from people in like other countries or sending books, which is pretty incredible. Like I got some books from Paris and I've gotten some books from, I think Ecuador. It's just incredible. And these messages are just really, really beautiful to see and hear how they're touching other people. And they're giving me the books. I'm like, you guys are helping me. But it's really, really, really nice to see.
0: The power of a goodwill gesture like this and really trying to just do something where people take it for granted situations right. like this. And and, and right. you identify so strongly again with those characters in your books. We all remember being kids growing up and getting right. lost in an awesome book. And then you yeah. realize, wait a minute, what if I don't relate to this person? What if this right. person has different skin color, different hair right. than I do? It's a whole new ball game when it comes to using reading to empower. And, and again, I, I keep going back to the child part of it. Yeah. But that's where people learn so much about their development and, and yeah. where they're going to go in their identity and their confidence. So yeah to start at that youngest age and even get books that are for kids who are are newborns. That's so instrumental to hear that you're really reaching out and making a big difference.
1: Thank you. It's been, it's been really amazing. And I really just, I wish I could have a hidden camera in all these books just to see the conversations. And people have messaged me saying my daughter stayed up all night reading your books and she can't believe um, that she hasn't seen these books before. And, it's really, really amazing to see the, the children these books are touching, but their parents and their families as well.
0: Obviously you're you're a lover of books. Yeah. Where where did that love come from? Because clearly you don't do this if you're not someone who's such an avid reader of, right. of, of books and being a page turner. So how did you get into books in the first place?
1: I always have just, my mom read to me a lot when I was growing up. It was a thing, I just, we would read chapter books and it, we just read a lot. And at one point, one summer, before I think I could do chores, my mom would be like, if you read this many books, I'll give you this many dollars. I think it was like for every five books, I probably got $2, but it helped me and it motivated me. And so I would just build upon that. And then I think by like my middle school years, I was making like at least like 80 bucks a summer for just, <laughs> that was like pretty great. And it motivated me, but I just love what books can do and it's such a great escape. And back when I was younger, it's not like I had a smartphone to spend all my hours on. And so books were such a great way to, you know, take the time away. And when I was on the beach or when I would be sitting in my backyard, it would just be a great time to just read. And now living in New York City, I really enjoy reading on my commute, on my subway ride. And I just find it to be a really relaxing way to just get lost or just to not think about other things, to really get into a story um, and just see where it takes you.
0: Well, and that's a really good point about how much reading has changed. Right. This initiative is, again, physical paper books, which right. might be bringing a physical paper book into a generation of kids who grew up with Kindles or grew up yeah. with the electronic readers. So again, yeah. kudos to you. We're, we're bringing it back to the old school.
1: Yes, yes. I, love, I love holding books. I love them and... It's true. I mean, a lot of these now you can actually even find on YouTube. Either the author has done a read aloud or um, I know with online learning for a lot of the students, um, teachers have done some recordings of these books. So um, that is a really great way. If you read the book and you love it, you might be able to find it online to read more of it. Um, But it's really been a great way for people to hold something in their hands, to talk about it, to see it, to turn back that page and go back and try to figure out why that person did that or has that style of something. Um, and so I think it's just something that you can, once you can physically hold it, it can bring so much purpose.
0: I want to take you back a little bit, Sarah, do a little bit yeah. of history for yourself. We've talked about your love of books, where that came from. Yes. I want to focus now on Syracuse and Syracuse yeah. university. Yeah. You studied child and family studies here at Syracuse in Falk. Yeah. What, What made Syracuse appeal to you so much as a place you wanted to get your education?
1: So it's funny, actually. So my dad immigrated from Uganda and the first school he went to was Syracuse. So Mm -hmm. he had a big love for Syracuse and he actually didn't stay. He was given a scholarship to a different school. Um, but he remembers like his first ice cream was in Syracuse, New York and all, um, some of his greatest first memories in the United States were in Syracuse. So I always kind of had a, a like for Syracuse. Um, and it kind of just worked out really well for me. And, uh, my first year at Syracuse, I also was a cheerleader at the time. So my first year at Syracuse, I was on the cheerleading team. And that was something I had really wanted to continue from high school. Um, I only did it my first year, but, It felt really good to be a part of something when, you know, college is so new. So it just was kind of a no-brainer for me. Um, I was between Syracuse and another school, but it was always Syracuse. So I have a friend who reached out to me who does um, uh, different types of art, and she's an incredible artist. And she was like, I'll make you uh, anything you want. So she's making me bookmarks, which is incredible. And then I have another friend who was in my sorority at Syracuse and who one night really late was like, hey, I'm sorry if I'm overstepping, but I made you a logo if you want it. And I was like, absolutely. I have no talents in art whatsoever. And so it's so amazing to see these people from my own Syracuse community um, who I knew really well and someone who I really didn't know all that well to be supporting me and helping this cause. It's, it's actually incredible. I'm like, you never know when your Syracuse friends are going to come around to help you. <laughs> So, yeah, I, love, I loved it. I loved my time there.
0: And what about your your program? How has having that child and family studies degree influenced you? Because you mentioned you're a school counselor down yes. in New York City. Yes. So what are some of the big lessons that you've learned from your time at Syracuse and your program that have served you well today?
1: Yeah, I think that the program I was in did a really good job of preparing me for working and despite having to I had to get my master's degree to be a school counselor so I did go to school for two more years after that um I went to NYU but I I can honestly say that if for some reason I didn't have to get a master's I would have been prepared for being a school counselor because in in the child and family studies program I was required to do a lot of hours in in a school both um both semesters my senior year, and one semester my junior year. So um, I was doing a lot of hours and similar hours to what I did in grad school in my undergrad, which was pretty awesome and such an eye-opening experience for me. And I was really able to work with the students in the Syracuse community. And I felt prepared and I felt motivated and my professors were incredible in also helping getting me to grad school. It just felt like I was working with the community that was supporting me, and I was supporting them. And it was really, it was great to feel um, just ready for my next two years of school. And not feeling like I'm not ready for this. I felt completely ready to take on. I was like, two more years. I got this. I've done this. I'm prepared. And I, it really went into grad school feeling ready.
0: Now, it seems like your your current role, again, being a school counselor down in New yeah. York City, that kind of plays hand in hand both with your your major from Syracuse and, again, yeah. this project, the yeah. Free Diverse Library Project. Do you think about that, the fact that there's such a tie-in between what you do for a living and then this kind of fun side hobby of yours that's giving back to a greater good?
1: When I was at Syracuse, I actually interned at a middle school that um, really helped me decide, like, I want to be a school counselor, this is what I want to do. And the majority of the students were students of color. And I think it was really powerful for them to see someone that looked like them in this role. Um, and seeing that, you know, a woman of color can be this leader for them. And that really carried its way into my current job, where um, I'm working in a school where students are, the majority are students of color, and There is just sometimes, you know, it can feel really good to have someone who looks like you supporting you and understanding your struggles in some ways. And so in my work at my school, I've been doing a lot of building self-confidence and building um, awareness of strengths and, you know, my students capabilities and showing them that nothing is too small. And then this project took off and I'm like, I'm, i am like i am and doing exactly what I'm trying to work with you guys on. And they really, really, they like think I'm a celebrity, which is so cute. I work in an elementary school, so they're younger. Um, And they really are taken aback by the whole project. And they want books and they just go crazy. They're like, Miss Kamiya, I couldn't believe I saw you on TV. And I think for me, it's just so fulfilling just to show them that no idea is too small or too big Um, They they really can do anything they want and I want to be there to support them for many, many years and I want them to know that, you know, I'm there for them and I want to advocate for my students so that they don't have to face some of the things that I I did when I was growing up or that others around them can build their awareness so that they can feel accepted and heard and understood um, in ways that maybe they haven't before.
0: It's really a powerful message, Sarah, and I encourage everybody if they want to get involved and, and give back to this project, Little Free Diverse Libraries, that's the handle on Instagram. Again, Little Free Diverse Libraries. There's also the Amazon wish list you can go through and search, which has a ton of great books. You can make a donation. You can give back to this worthy cause. And Sarah, I have to say, you've really, you know, it's been fun chatting with you here on the Q's Conversations podcast. You've made us proud with all the work you're doing and we Hi. wish you nothing but the best of luck.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you so, so much for having me. I, I seriously owe a lot of my best moments to Syracuse. And it's really an honor to be on here. And hopefully my books can reach Syracuse. I'm going to have to send some. I'm going to have to send some to you, John. I have to.
0: I guarantee you there's an audience and a marketplace we can find for them up there. Yeah. So again, make sure you get involved. Give back to this worthy cause. And Sarah, keep up the great
1: work. Thank you.
0: Thanks for checking out the latest installment of the Cuse Conversations podcast. You can find our podcast on all of your major podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. You can also find our podcast at alumni.syr.edu slash Conversations and anchor.fm slash Conversations. My name is John Boccasino signing off for the Cuse Conversations podcast.